This is Jane Smith reporting for WASP News. We report so you don't have to decide. Now, we're live outside of Sovereign Studios, where a protest has been taking place. Uh, sir, sir, what is going on here? We're going to put an end to his godless hedonism. He's corrupting the entire planet. Uh, you must be talking about the golden stallion of the tech world, Brian Sovereign. That's right. That sex fiend of an anarchist has crossed the line. We're going to rip his triple black clothing and then him to shreds. But Brian Sovereign believes in nonviolence. We don't care. He wants to end government and wants to pervert science and technology to do it. Brian Sovereign has to be stopped. This just in. Brian Sovereign is coming out of the studio. You're getting some world-class meat right here, baby. But it's not government-inspected because whew, I am the Golden Stallion, the Man of Tomorrow, Savzu, the Rated R Radio Star, the Moadiba, the Motherboard, baby. Ready for you for a little Sovereign Tech this week. And I got to tell you, we're going to be doing it. It's another episode where I'm just going to run it straight through. <laughs> we have so much to talk about. We're getting closer. I'll tell you, on Patreon. We're getting real. We're like 75% of the way there to where I will. I could be doing two episodes a week and I could finally get in all that other tech news that's going on. It's so tough to cover everything. And there's a lot of important stuff out there. Uh, and I don't exactly get to cover it on Patreon because that's where I want you to have control of the content, the sovereign tech listeners. Um, I want you to be like, what questions do you want to get? You know, do you want to ask? What do you want me to talk about? You let me know. And then I talk about it. I, we break down. In fact, I think last week's uh, Q&A did a big, big breakdown, or maybe it was the week previous, but did a big breakdown uh, on Ubuntu and a lot of this other stuff. And then a lot of times, I mean, you guys and gals and Zs, you just want me talking about philosophy and I don't know, like nerdy shit. And hey, by all means, <laughs> I will talk that stuff all day long with people. No problem. But you know, that's your chance when you get on Patreon, that's your chance to take control. And it also helps the whole rest of the world. Woo, imagine that you get to help the whole rest of the world with getting to hear more content we get maybe when we have when we have uh, another episode we'll get to do interviews deeper tech dives all kinds of stuff and you know a whole lot more science and get into the wild and the speculative which i always enjoy doing and maybe even getting into a lot more history so if you're not a patron yet we've got a we've got a bunch of new patrons this week if you're not a patron yet you still get your chance sovereigntech.com uh, to become a part of that 
And two other points, baby. You want to... I've seen people have been sending the pictures. In fact, we might even talk about this a little bit later uh, during uh, during game talk of the show. Uh, I saw people sharing pictures of them getting getting their their Super NES, cla- or, you know, their their SNES Classic, their Super Nintendo Classic that just came out yesterday. Uh, speaking on Patreon, I actually took video of my travels, <laughs> my quest to get my hands on one of these things, and I did. And we're going to review it later. Uh, but I saw people wearing they're wearing their Sovereign Tech gear, their shirts, and all that. Uh, to to picking up to, to picking up you know their, their SNES classic and everything and oh man everybody's just looking so good wearing those t-shirts their hoodies whatever and you all you got to do store.sovereigntech.com store.sovereigntech.com and you can get your hands on some great merch there's all kind there's mugs I mean any way you could kind of want uh, the, the the classic Sovereign Tech logo to be worn upon you, you can pretty much find there. So just go to store.sovereigntech.com. I thank you so much to everybody that has bought on that so far. And don't forget, we, I want to get this out of the way early. Don't forget the Sovereign Tech newsletter. I had a ton more people sign up for that this week. And I'm glad people are jumping on board with it. Got the new issue coming out. Then I mean, I'm going to be rapid firing some of these issues here uh, in pretty short order. People love this. I say it every week, but it's a fact. Every time I get new signups and people get their newsletter, I get a response, I mean, almost across the board, that it is one of the hottest, one of the most informative, one of the most fun, if not the most, of all of the above newsletter they've ever received, that they ever get. And you get it every couple weeks at least. Uh, and just, uh, I, I love doing it. And because I get to build up this email list, which I'm not going to share with anybody, with this email list, if something ever goes wrong, if something ever goes down, okay, as far as with SoundCloud, with Facebook, which we've talked about that recently, we might talk about that briefly again, because somebody, some people have sent some, well, crazy comments in my opinion, but whatever, uh, about my whole situation on that, or if something happened on Twitter or to the website, you know, at zog.email or whatever, something happened. Email is the thing that they, that the powers that be can't really practically shut down. And so that's the guaranteed way for me to always be able to reach you and for you to find out what's going on with me. Maybe, you know, who knows, maybe the RSS feed would have to move or, you know, some kind of uh, a travesty would occur that I'd have to do something drastic to solve. And I could let you know about it by me having this email list. So it's, it, it, I want to make sure you're getting something out of just handing me your email, uh, but there's a, a larger, a broader reason for having uh, email addresses, and you can use any email. I, I don't care, and I don't need to know your name. When, when you sign up for the Sovereign Tech newsletter, it doesn't ask for any other information. I don't give a shit. All I want to be able to do is just reach you, okay? I don't need to know your address. I don't, I don't need to know any of that bullshit. I don't want to know. Because then I become responsible for it. And then, God damn it, I don't want that kind of responsibility. Okay. <laughs> Data minimization, folks. Uh, you know, I just want to be able to reach you and make sure that, you know, all, I mean, there's thousands of you. And I want to make sure that I can stay in touch with the thousands of you because I think it's a, it's a beautiful synergistic relationship that's been developed with Sovereign Tech. Uh, and, and it's just, it's such a pleasure to, to be able to connect with all of you, you know, every single week and every single week for pretty much six years. I mean, this is, man, what a wild ride. So, all right, let's start talking about whew, that wild ride uh, because we, we've got a ton to cover, like some, some announcements this week that really, I mean, they just came out of nowhere. You know, real quick, though, did anybody else catch the I mean, there, there isn't I don't think there's video, but there's pictures of it where it was in Siberia, where something like at least 
200 some odd polar bears attacked or, or not attacked started eating this 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 bowhead whale <laughs> like that the, like this carcass that just washed ashore and they just all flocked like i, I mean i i think the conservative estimates were around like 200 uh, of these things but it, it could have been way more and people I mean, the reports I heard on it, people are literally still pinching themselves. I can't believe that they saw such a thing. I mean, like they, they just all of the hundreds of polar bears just just hounding this one giant bowhead whale carcass. Wow, that was wild. <laughs> These things, I, I can't even imagine that. I mean, it's it's a, it's amazing to see one polar bear and I've seen them in my day, you know, but to see hundreds of them and just like, you know, launch onto this car on this giant whale. Holy fuck. <laughs> that was that was nuts. I couldn't believe when I saw it. If if I can find the show notes or if I if I can find a link uh, for it, maybe I'll I'll pop it in the show notes or maybe I'll use it for the cover art for the show <laughs> for this episode. <laughs> but uh anyway, I, I yeah, I just thought that was crazy. Um you know, maybe a way to to keep track of these moving populations would be to use GPS. No, I don't want to track there's no need to track the, the fucking polar bears. Let them be. Uh, but <laughs> anyway, uh but that's that's my attempt at a segue because Broadcom uh, announced this week, and this is pretty interesting. And I don't think a lot of people actually realized just how well fairly imprecise uh, that that GPS chips are that are out there. The average consumer GPS chip, of course, in the military, the GPS chips are are already at a, at a you know very high level of precision, obviously. Uh, but for for consumer GPS uh, chips that exist in your smartphones or on your Garmin or wherever you happen to be using them, I don't think people realize just how inefficient those those really are. Uh, but Broadcom is coming out with the BCM four seven seven five five, very sexy name for for a chip. Uh, that it, it's a GPS chip and it increases it improves the accuracy. Okay, and it does a whole lot more, but it improves the accuracy of your you know your average GPS chip. Only, I mean, it has an accuracy of about five meters. That's why when you set Google Maps to uh, to walk, it, you know, it might be very confused because it doesn't know which way you're actually going and everything. And it's trying to tie in with the uh, uh, the accelerometer that exists within your phone or device or whatever to, to sort of, you know, figure out where you are. But now this new chip, the BCM 47755, boy, let that just, man, it just rolls off the tongue. It, it uh, that actually, I mean, and this is impressive has an uh you know a degree of accuracy to 30 centimeters 30 centimeters now believe me google maps is not going to give be giving you that those weird i mean with 30 centimeters i think you could actually you could pinpoint direction without you know using like a, a you know the, a, a gyrometer or the accelerometer or whatever um you know inside the device so I don't know exactly what size these would be, like if if it's going to end up taking a little more space. I can't imagine so because they know they have to deal with manufacturers that are always just that are always thinking, you know, slimmer, smaller, etc. But the more impressive part, I think, about it is that they use half the power of the, the present GPS. So you're getting more accuracy and it's using less power. That's remarkable because GPS is one of the main battery drainers in any device that you're using. I mean, it'll, you know, it'll just suck a battery dry and to have it use less power and then add on that accuracy. Phenomenal. Now, of course, privacy concerns. Oh, you bet your ass. No doubt about that. Okay. (laughs) Uh, And, you know, just like last week when we talked about Blueborn, um, 
and Android's really good about this, about giving you the option to, uh, you know, like we're in a drop down and it depends on the skin of the manufacturer of the phone that you buy, whether it's LG or Samsung or whoever. But when you have the drop down, it gives you the quick option to of like, you know, little buttons you can press that can turn off various radios and, and, and chips and whatever. Uh, like you can turn off Bluetooth, you can turn off Wi-Fi, turn it on or off, or you could turn off GPS and all that. I mean, generally you want to leave this stuff off. But, you know, something that that really came to came to prominence, a point that that finally came out uh, that I don't think a lot of people realized is that a lot of, you know, Android and iOS will both do. And in fact, I think it was iOS particularly that would that would do this one is that like every morning at 5 a.m., even if you turned off Bluetooth, so I think it was iOS that they said where I mean, it doesn't matter whether it's iOS or Android, it's still bullshit that it will turn it automatic the, the OS automatically turns on turns the bluetooth back on at 5 a.m. and it's like uh what the fuck i said turn that shit off you know and i'm going i'm going to assume that it's iOS because like i've had android phones for years and they've never done that to me but that's i mean maybe there's a way to to, to turn that off but I, when i heard about that i was like oh yeah i mean this this it just proves the point about so, what they call soft switches where yeah, you have control of what your device can do, but it's all on some kind of like software or touchscreen overlay, uh, you know, that 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 you have access to. It's not a physical switch that is actually a cutoff switch like, uh, you know, when you think of the old um, the old ThinkPads where they had like the Wi-Fi uh, switch on it, where when you when you move, when you, you turn the Wi-Fi off, it was a literal physical cutoff that Wi-Fi could not turn back on. There's just no way. You know, you had to either you had to either flick the switch back. I mean, that that like or that was it. And this is it just highlights the problem with soft switches. The operating system at the end of the day has total control. And if you're not the person that's in total control of the operating system, well, turn that shit off all you want. You know, it, it, it can be turned on by by whoever has actual control at any given moment. Um, I know that the, the McAfee phone, which I ripped on pretty hard and rightfully so, in my opinion, I did. But <laughs> uh, but, you know, I agreed with him with with on the McAfee phone, which is like this Android secure phone that they want to put out there, uh, that they put hardware switches on the back that will physically cut off, uh, you know, Bluetooth and whatever other you know radios that you have on your device. Yeah, that's the I, that part of it I thought was great. That part of it I was like, "Oh, yeah, good. You know, you, if you can if you know you're turning off all these radios, I'm fucking right. Like that's important to have hardware switches for that." I'm I, Yeah, I, I've said this before. It's an old quote of mine, but like the world is perishing from a lack of hardware switches. It really is. I mean, like that that's just that's how you know you have control when you have a physical cutoff of a lot of these uh, uh you know, either radios, antennas, um, or data streams in general. So re- yeah, I get it. Well, isn't that thinking backward? Look, you know, let me talk about this for a second. When I say stop using Google, when I say stop using maybe Facebook or something like that, when I make these kind of claims, it's amazing that people instantly jump to, oh, well, why don't you go, you know, uh, you, the only way you can really trust it is if you get the sand out of your backyard and, and you know, bake your own silicon and everything, you know, make your own chips. Blah, blah. No, no, stop. Look, when somebody says, when somebody says, stop, you know, f- fuck Google, stop using Google, when somebody says, right, screw Facebook, I'm done using it and all that stuff, the, you know, they're not saying, let's go be Amish. 
You understand the antithesis of like if a world without Google is not becoming the Amish. You get me? A world without Google is just a world with a little more privacy. There's still alternatives out there that you can use. Duck, duck, go. Woo. And a lot of these other things. It drives that drives me up the wall when they say, oh, well, you don't want to use this. Well, then let's just go back to the Stone Age. That's not the alternative. We know what the alternative looks like already without this stuff, and it's not bad. And you still get to do all the fun shit and all the wild shit that you do every day anyway, for fuck's sake. People drive me nuts when they, when, when they say that. They instantly, it's, it's so amazing. They just, you instantly go to like the most extreme examples of, yeah, go bake your own silicon oils. No, no, we know that anything. I mean, look, the Pentagon can get hacked. Anything can get hacked. No shit, but you can make it expensive. You can make it hard. You cannot just, you know, be a fucking, uh, pardon my usage of this term. You cannot be a data whore and just hand it all over to them. Like, oh, here, yeah, Google, go ahead, take it. Wow. So anyway, point being, yes, there's privacy concerns about having more accurate GPS out there. Sure. Uh, but it is, I mean, you know, it is impressive to see this kind of technology hit stride because I can tell you, like I said, or like I just like I mentioned earlier. Yeah, the military has had far more accurate GPS uh, chips and, and technology for decades. OK, but I can tell you those things do not use less power. I mean, that that's an impressive, uh, you know, it, just on an engineering aspect. This is an impressive achievement and it's worth bringing up. So expect these things to be in your phones and watches in the next couple of years. In fact, I think maybe the primary reason that this was developed in the first place is so that it can work in other platforms like the watch or maybe the smart glasses, you know, some kind of headset, AR head or mixed reality, uh, you know, apparatus, whatever that ends up looking like. So, yeah, uh, Fairly, you know, pretty cool. I, I, you know, I'm not against GPS and technology in general. I mean, again, the problem is, is that there's like the central store of all this shit, but <laughs> whatever. Anyway, let's, uh, let, let's move on to, uh, to another little bit of news. Now, you know, speaking of some game changing news, so not news to anybody that has listened to Sovereign Tech for a while. I am not a fan of Elon Musk. I'm not a fan of Tesla and what Teslas do. Um, I've covered I've covered all of this on many an episode. The reasons why uh, I mean, this guy is a government welfare queen. I mean, I, and, and I don't think he's actually as brilliant as a lot of people give him the credit for. Um, and but one guy that I think is absolutely as brilliant as <laughs> as people don't really seem to give him credit for, maybe because they don't consider his pro his his pro his most well-known products to uh, be very manly or very sexy. I totally disagree. Uh, and we're talking about Sir James Dyson of the Dyson Company, uh, who, you know, who, which, yes, the vacuum cleaners and the hand dryers and all that that run on, uh, you know, on, on cyclonic technology. Uh, and I mean, me, I, you know, I'm look, I'm the guy I clean the house. I, I love cleaning. I, you know, I'm, I'm full on Danny Tanner, baby. Like, I mean, that's I, I am such. I love doing it like I enjoy the hell out of it. And Dyson vacuum cleaners, fucking awesome. People have no idea of, of, about a lot of that. I mean, well, anyway, I'm, I'm not I'm not going to go down that road. He announced let's just break it. <laughs> he announced that uh, they, he plans on uh, releasing an electric car or launching an electric car by 2020. Now, this isn't anything new for Dyson. And 
again, most people just think of Dyson for the vacuum cleaners. This guy has done so much more. And if you look into into Dyson's history, I mean, he's like he's developed things from way back. I mean, this guy was born in the 40s, you know, but he's he's done stuff from way back. Like his first I think one of his first inventions originally he was in art school, which that I think that's awesome that you know, a lot of people give St- Steve Jobs credit for his attention to art and everything and then becoming an engineer, even though, you know, how much engineering did he actually do? Uh, well, Dyson's the same the same breed. You know, this is a guy that originally was going for art and then got into engineering. And I think one of like his first invention was um, the ball barrow instead of the wheelbarrow. It's the ball barrow where he, he put a ball underneath the barrow, you know, like a wheelbarrow that you push. Right. And uh, he won like awards for that. And this was back in like the 60s, 60s or 70s or something. Now, it's funny because fast forward, you know, some odd 30, 40 years <laughs> and then he uses that same ball design. The idea is of replacing the wheel with a ball. He uses that on his vacuum cleaners and it becomes a, rev- you know, like a revolution literally in the, in the operation of a vacuum cleaner. Now, look, I'm not saying this guy's any kind of libertarian or anarchist. He's not. OK, he loves himself some IP and the whole patent system, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but he's genuinely come up with very brilliant products uh, that really work and have market value pay for themselves. He doesn't have to take money from the government, unlike Elon Musk, uh, who has to do pre-order and all this other horse shit. No, Dyson doesn't have to mess with any of that. Uh, so I, I'm genuine myself. I'm genuinely excited about this guy getting into the car business. Now, he tried it before. In fact, like the same technology that he uses in his uh, vacuum cleaners, he tried to apply to diesel engines to where like it would eliminate the emissions from diesel engines. Didn't exactly take off. But bottom line being is this is, you know, this is a world class engineer that we're talking about here when we're talking about James Dyson. This is a guy who I think really had in his own head has the knowledge to put together something really special. I just, you know, I've been against kind of not against, but like I haven't been very enthused about electric cars. I just got enthused with this guy jumping in on it. I am very, very interested to see exactly what, you know, what he ends up developing and what crops out of this, Uh, because, again, a brilliant guy. And he's come up with so many innovations, so many things that people don't even realize this. He has the pedigree, the pedigree that Elon Musk does not fucking have, especially when it comes to engineering. Uh, so I am I'm really, really interested. I'm going to be keeping a close eye on what he ends up releasing, because, like I said, I think he has. He's got it all. He has what it takes to actually make a genuinely great product in, in the electric car category. Uh, so I think that's going to be very interesting. And again, like I said, I'll be keeping a, a very uh, close eye on that. But uh, other news. Oh, boy. And how about this? Twitter has come out and, you know, as a company, because it, it's there's not just one brain there. It's a collective brain that all operates like the Borg. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> but But Twitter has... Uh, come out and said that, and they're only starting testing this with a very, with a small group of people. Uh, they are testing 280 character tweets instead of the average 140. Now there was a little while a year ago or so was it when Jack Dorsey took over again, where he's he was talking about making it a 10,000 character limit, and I said then, yeah, I'm fine with that. That's okay because Twitter has, especially over the past two or three years has really been on a path of just copying everything, you know, everything Facebook does pretty much. Um, 
the one thing I, I wish that they would do. So if you didn't if you didn't catch it, I don't mind the 280 character limit. Like I, I think that's okay. In fact, most people don't remember. You know, in the early days of Facebook, like 2010 and like this, uh, Facebook had a 250 character limit. I think I think it was 250. Uh, now you know that's that's completely changed. But that's why they had the note feature to let people know that this is going to be something significantly longer on Facebook. But originally they had 250 characters, and obviously that worked very well. I think it's very smart of them. To, to increase it to that and be able to say more. And I get the argument against it that people are like, oh, well, you know, this won't allow for the precision and the brevity. Yeah, and I get that. And I've, I've you know, I've kind of gone back and forth on that, that, it, you know, like I've even made statements to say, look, if you can't say it on Twitter, it's not worth saying. But no, there's there's a lot of things that you can't, you, you really can't get out that I would love to be able to get out. And I know you can do tweet storms. You can do all this other stuff to, you know, to, to, to bypass it, or you can uh, take screenshots of words and everything and, and put it on there. But then people complain about the screenshots. So whatever that, you know, that <laughs> you can't win there, but I think the 280 character limit, I think that's a nice move. I do wish the, the feature I wish they would come out with is groups, not Every time I say this, it's amazing. People are just like, well, you could do it in a DM. No, you need something that can thread. Okay. Something that has threading, not, not something that's just like a messaging app. Okay. Uh, I would love it if they did groups, if Twitter did groups. Oh yeah. You better believe the sovereign tech uncensored group would move right over uh, to Twitter, which by the way, if you're wondering about an update on that, what's going on with sovereign tech uncensored group had a bunch of people or quite a few more people uh, sign up this, uh, this past week, maybe after they heard what, uh, you know, my screed from the previous episode. Um, and yeah, it's still going, I'm still letting it fly, but th- there, I talked about it on Patreon this week. There were new developments where there's now Facebook's getting to the point where there's certain things like they won't let me post. Like as soon as I go to upload a photo, they just won't let me post the photo and, uh, but other people can, uh, anyway, I'm not going to get into that. You can listen to the Patreon episode about all that, but, uh, the 280 character thing. Uh, yeah. Again, I don't, I really don't see the harm. Um, I know a lot of celebrities and other people really enjoy Twitter because, you know, all, all of the interactions can be brief enough to where they really can perhaps respond to what's going on and nobody is sending them like these really, really long screeds that they have to read and all that. And, and I understand those arguments too. And there's validity to that, but I, I think people are going to find 280 characters actually it just kind of sits and feels right. Uh, you know, so I'm all for this. I'm, I'm not, I'm not against it. Uh, what Twitter was meant to be, it, it hasn't been, you know, a microblogging platform. It hasn't been that for years and years and years and years. I don't even think people know that that's what it was meant to be. Uh, <laughs> so so it might as well. I mean, as far as it being a, you know, a place where you can just share links to get people to look at your other work and be kind of the phone number of the Internet, going to 280 characters isn't going to change any of that. So why the fuck not? You know, just 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 let it be. <laughs> I, I, yeah, so I, I really, I have no problem with this. Uh, and there needs to be a Facebook alternative out there right now. I think more so than ever. And if 280 characters helps with that mission, fuck, by all means, do it. In fact, it was funny. Uh, one of my favorite Twitter accounts, um, Swift on Security, <laughs> she said, <laughs> which is kind of, you know, parody account, but I'm sure listeners of the show know about Swift on Security, <laughs> but she said, 
She said, uh, if this 280 character thing happens, I'm changing this Twitter feed to just 24-7 science fiction erotic, erotica. You literally can't stop me. <laughs> and someone actually, a Sovereign Tech listener actually like retweeted that to me, say, saying, if Sovereign Tech, good, you know, good news. <laughs> and you know what? I could do that. And 280 characters? Oh, I could write. I could write some really hot shit. I'm all about science fiction erotica. That's half the reason I think people read the Sovereign Tech newsletter. <laughs> And uh, and people enjoy it, and that's really vindicating for me because I've always wanted to be an author. But anyway, um, you know, I mean, yeah, I love writing the the Dark Android book, right? You know, which you can find at darkandroid.info, to, you know, and giving people practical things they can do to secure their devices and all that. I'm all about it. But I I love writing sexy shit, you know, all the time. Even though I think encryption is uh, is very sexy. I mean, is there anything hotter than getting a signal from somebody? Like, really, <laughs> you know, knowing that they give a shit about privacy and all that or hell, if people send pictures and, you know, nudes and all this other shit through. I mean, that, that's it's phenomenal. Love it. So, anyway, <clears throat> uh, uh, so let's see uh, what other. Yeah. OK, so this is going to this is our last bit for uh, for the foreplay um, this week. And then we'll get into our main story for the week, which is actually a little bit of a realization that I had, and I don't know, it, and it's not like a new one for people, but it's kind of a new one for me, and I want to talk about it. Uh, but this is this is interesting, and I haven't seen any update as to what's going on with this or if it's been fixed or repaired. Uh, but Google disabled the YouTube app on the on Amazon's Echo Show. Now the Echo Show is the one in the Echo line. Now there's a whole new slew of products in the Echo line now, which we'll talk about in a second that just got announced this past week. And this is being recorded on September 30th, 2017. Um, the so the YouTube app was I mean, they just made it non-functional. OK, on, on the Echo show and Google's claiming that it's because the the YouTube app on the Echo show isn't exactly meeting Google's standards, which who the fuck is developing the YouTube app? for for the, you know the the Amazon products wouldn't wouldn't that have been Google <laughs> so so I I don't I don't exact I don't know I don't know where the disconnect is there but Amazon is more or less claiming that this is Google you know trying to uh, you know play some hardball and trying to fuck with their device line which would be believable considering the fact that, you know, Google is getting, you know, they have the Google home and they have so many, you know, devices that, uh, you know, are getting into the kind of the, the smart home space or the virtual assistant space that Amazon is really owning right now. I mean, really owning right now. Uh, I think that what I what I really think is going on, and in fact, it's not just this. Also this week, it was announced that a lot of uh, YouTube creators and I don't know what, what you call people that like YouTube stars, I guess I'll say that, uh, that when they are putting because you can do embedded like information and embedded links on an actual video where it comes up like an overlay on there, which apparently that's the only way people will do or catch anything uh, is if you put it right on the video. I guess nobody reads video notes like the, the, the like show notes or notes underneath the video. OK, uh, but anyway, apparently they won't in the embedded uh, you know, where, where you could put embedded links on a video, YouTube is not allowing you to link people to your Patreon page anymore. Now, of course, YouTube has over the past couple of years been dramatically changing 
the way that that YouTube videos can be monetized and what creators can do to make money off of what they do. And they've been adding in, honestly, a lot of Patreon-esque features. We've been covering this for over a year now. Uh, and I, I, both of these instances where, oh, Google won't, won't let, or, you know, Google won't, I mean, YouTube technically is its own company now uh, under, under Alphabet, right? It's not technically Google, but let's, let's be honest, anything under Alphabet is really Google. And all of those companies, companies work in absolute synergy with each other. It's horseshit to think that those companies somehow, oh, just, just because Larry Page said, oh no, actually this is Alphabet. Just because he did that, to think that, oh, now all these companies act independently of horse shit, horse shit. And I know I have some listeners here who actually work for Alphabet. Uh, and, you know, you, you tell me if that's not true. Go ahead. You, you can send me the email and, and you, you break it down for me. Give me give me some proof that that's not how things work. Bullshit. They're all working together. And I mean, and well, anyway, that's that's an old argument that we talked about when Alphabet uh you know, when they first announced that they were becoming the umbrella corporation with the T virus. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I mean, when they first announced they're becoming a parent company. Uh, but anyway, so YouTube, you know, kind of functions on its own. But yeah, this feels like a very concerted effort on Google's part, in my opinion, to, uh, you know, to, to like I, I so. OK, for, for an analogy and not not the proof by analogy is proof, but for an for an analogy. I talked about this uh, or I theorized about this a few years ago that Skype for Microsoft was was like a tr- was a Trojan horse, not a Trojan in the like cybersecurity sense. OK, but a Trojan horse in that they would make Skype available for every platform. But what they would do is, is that the idea is they would get everybody hooked on Skype and then they would pull Skype away say from Linux or Apple or, you know, Apple's whatever varying OS is, uh, you know, or whatever they would pull it away. So that way, if you still wanted to use Skype, Oh, you'd have to buy into Microsoft's ecosystem. You'd have to start using, you know, a windows machine or maybe even windows phone or something. Now it doesn't appear that they've actually done that. And Microsoft seems to have different things in mind of what they're doing, uh, with, with Skype though. Maybe they still are. And the idea is to get everybody hooked into HoloLens. Okay. But, uh, this is what I, I think maybe Google is now thinking with YouTube is that, oh, we can just pull YouTube away and look, you have to have YouTube. Now, yeah, you can you can run, you know, you you can still watch YouTube in a web browser. OK, like even I think, well, I don't know if the Echo Show has a web browser. I don't have an Echo Show. I'm not sure. I don't know if it has. What is it? Silk is that that's the web, browser, which I never recommend using Silk because the Silk browser in its terms of service says we record everything you do. So obviously I wouldn't recommend using that, but, um, you know, you, yeah, you could still kind of watch YouTube on that and everything. And and again, I don't know how exactly that works out with the echo show. Uh, but this is interesting that, Oh, you know, you want to link to Patreon. Oh, you want to watch this on an Amazon device that we're competing with. We'll just take YouTube away from you. Maybe that's not what's going on. Maybe really Amazon just wasn't living up to some standards that Google has. I'm open to that being the, you know, the case. But when you start having more of these instances, like with Patreon and some others, uh, then it starts to look a little bit fishy, not in the positive way. Uh, so <laughs> uh, anyway, <laughs> but um, yeah, so now but Amazon did uh, release a whole new slew of products um, this week 
And, you know, before I get into those products, something I, I want to tell you about, and this is not on YouTube. This is uh, actually like, well, maybe they have, maybe they put their shows on YouTube. But if you want to listen to, let, let, let's take a little break. Let's do a little sponsor here quick. If you want to listen to a great podcast, okay, I know, you know, one of the channels I watch on YouTube all the time is the Star Wars channel. But hey, maybe you have an Echo Show and you can't watch the, you know, the Star Wars channel on, uh, on YouTube anymore. Well, what are you going to do? How are you going to fix this? Let me tell you how. You listen to the Resist the Empire podcast at resisttheempirepodcast.com. Uh, Resist the Empire podcast, I love this. It's a Star Wars show that has that nice liberty-oriented view uh, with it, which I really enjoy because it, it, at least, even if it's just hints of it, I like to have that because... Yeah, it's tough. Like, like, where do you get libertarian themes out of mainstream, uh, you know, entertainment and media? Well, I'll tell you, the guy, Roger Paxton and the guys that, you know, at the Resist the Empire podcast, they they get it. <laughs> and, and, and it's awesome uh, to listen to. They cover a lot of the latest news, uh, all this different info. I And, and they have a lot of fun um, doing it. it. It's my it really is my favorite Star Wars podcast. Uh, just a ton of fun to do. So check out the Resist the Empire podcast at resisttheempirepodcast.com. Uh, I, I you will not be disappointed. I guarantee you that. Uh, and if you're not a Star Wars fan, they might make you into one. So check it out, resisttheempirepodcast.com, and I thank them for sponsoring Sovereign Tech. So, okay, let's talk about all of the new devices that Amazon released this week. Um, there is the second generation Amazon Echo, which people were wondering just how long this would take. Because what? The Echo's been around for uh, three years or so, two, three years. Uh, so it's about time for a refresh, I, I suppose. I mean, kudos to Amazon for having the first generation Echo just you know, kind of be the thing that they sell. But I mean, they don't make all their money off of hardware, obviously. And, it, and really, I think Amazon by nature sells hardware, you know, their own hardware at a loss because they're just trying to get you into their ecosystem. Uh, and investors are willing to play the long game with Bezos because now they're getting it. They're getting what we have been covering on Sovereign Tech for years now, which is the Amazon World Domination Tour. You know, f funny, real quick, funny thing. Um, I think last week, I talked about the, the delivery service, the, the food delivery service where they're working with Chipotle and Five Guys and all that. Well, they're, they're actually working with another company that works with those companies. And the story that I read about that actually said just another part of Amazon's world domination. And I was like, oh, now, now, years later, all of you are seeing exactly what I said, that this is world domination, even though I know that that byline is kind of a kind of in jest. Uh, but Still, you know, the verbiage finally hit that, yeah, Amazon's, uh, you know, on the path. Uh, and, you know, this lineup of new devices might certainly help, them, you know, might help them out with that. So, yeah, they don't make money off of the hardware, so they can sell this stuff sort of, you know, sort of at a loss. Because uh, the, the, uh, the new Amazon Echo, the second generation one, is just 100 bucks. That's half the price of what the original Amazon Echo cost, which is like $200. Unless you bought it and you had Prime and, you, like, you pre-ordered it, then I think it was 100 bucks. But to buy it outright, it was $200 uh, back when it first came out. So, and a lot of these aren't getting released until end of October 2017. Uh, which I think is going to be true for a lot of people's devices and whatever else. So that'll be interesting to see where the money flows, uh, you know, this uh, this holiday season. Um, but, uh, yeah, th I mean, the main change with the Echo is it's a, it looks a little shorter. Uh, I'm sure the speakers are a little bit nicer. They have some different colors. You don't just have to get black or white. Um, you know, there's like a bamboo style one. You know, there's all, all these different. I mean, it still looks like a little trash can, but. There's a lot of, you know, there's like a wood style, fab, some fabric styles, metallic finishes and all that. Um, 
and yeah, I think there's just been little bit improvements to like the microphones and the speakers on them. That that's the basic gist. Then they're a hundred bucks. Uh, then there's the Amazon Echo Plus, which looks a little bit more like the traditional, the first generation um, Amazon uh, Echo. And the Echo Plus has a couple of, eh, I mean, I'll just say interesting, even though I don't think that this whole line is positive in any way. But the Echo Plus has uh, Dolby sound processing, so you should be getting a little more boost out of those speakers with that. And then the main thing that it that it allows for is it has a, a Zigbee compatible uh, smart hub in it. So the the Echo Plus can be your for all of your IoT devices and all your internet connect, internet connected uh, devices. It can actually be the central hub for all of those things to to interconnect. How that's going to end up working out? I mean, Zigbee is is a standard protocol for IoT for for Internet of Targets uh, or Internet of Things to be hacked. Or oh, I'm sorry, of Internet of Things. Uh, so it should interact well enough with that. And you would obviously use the Alexa app on your smartphone or maybe th- through a web interface to set all of that up, uh, because the echo plus, you know, it's not the echo show where it has a screen or anything on, on that. There's, there's no interface whatsoever on the device itself. Uh, but yeah, that's kind of the big deal. And look, it just, it just lends itself. And that's, this whole line is really going to prove the point that I've been making for a while that what Amazon's doing by expanding the echo line, like with the echo look, the echo show, the echo dot, you know, go down the list. It's all about taking over your entire house. It's all about having an echo in every room, making that smart house, etc. Uh, and you know, maybe that's because, I mean, I, it could be as simple a reason as Amazon doesn't even really want you to leave your house, <laughs> you know, or they, they want you to be very limited in where you need to go so that they can deliver shit to you or, you know, and, and they become again, Amazon, in my opinion, Amazon's goal. And I've been saying this for a very long time, long before anybody else. Amazon's goal is to be a monopsony, not a monopoly, a monopsony where they are the uh, they control they have a you know they have they have control of distribution not of production that's monopoly but of distribution of like everything out there and yeah i i think this is this is a big part of that uh you know is is maybe just to keep you in your fucking home which that's depressing <laughs> but in the city it's it's somewhat commonplace almost but uh well anyway um, so yeah, the Echo Plus, that's going to be, you know, now that's your centralized hub for all of these interconnected devices. And obviously it's not like, I don't think it's exactly that, that Amazon wants to play nice with other IOT companies. The, I think it's pretty clear with the Echo Plus, the idea of that being a smart hub is that Amazon has plans, maybe like that security camera we talked about last week. Uh, but Amazon has plans to release a whole ton of IOT products to interconnect you know, or a whole a much larger line of that. So that's, that's really, this is the echo plus is foreshadowing, which is why I say uh, its features are, are interesting. Um, then there is, uh, this is some people are hailing this as like the best echo of the bunch. And if I were to think in a conventional sense, not in like, I give a shit about my privacy sense, uh, which, you know, that's such a pain in the ass to, to actually give a damn about security and privacy, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> I hope you know the sarcasm, uh, but the Amazon Echo Spot, the Echo Spot. What this is is it looks like it looks like a little spheroid alarm clock with a little with a little screen on it, and it's like the Echo Show, except it's it's a mixture between. That's why they called it the Spot because it's it's a hybrid between the 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 Echo Dot and the Echo Show. 
Okay, uh, so it's it's small. It has a screen on it. It can do everything supposedly that the Echo Show can do, um, and any of the other Echoes can do. You can connect to Alexa and everything, but it's all in this little like, you know, can fit in the palm of your hand little circular device. I agree. If I was thinking conventionally, this is the best of the bunch because it gives you the best of all worlds where you can do what you do on the echo show. It can give you a display of certain information. Uh, it can give you like the, the morning video feed that the echo, uh, echo show can do. And, um, you know, but it has all the features and obviously the microphones aren't as good. Um, and the speakers aren't as good, but it gives you a lot of the features that, um, you know, that you get from from the rest of the Echo line. And it is one that you have to plug in. It's not like the dot where it can kind of be taken uh, anywhere. But that's that was that was the other. There's also there's like these Echo buttons, which I'm, I'm not even going to get into those. <laughs> okay, Because pretty much people are just playing Simon. Remember the game Simon with the colors and you had to remember the pattern of the colors are in. But like these Echo buttons allow you to interact uh, and play games with your with your Echo whatever. I mean, there's, they even said that it was kind of released as an afterthought. I'm not saying there aren't going to be intriguing things done with it. And I may talk about them more in the future, but that's not really what's important here. Um, I'll admit when I saw the echo spot, I was almost tempted. I was like, wow, that is, that is really cool. Uh, and even just the fact that it's something you could put to the side on your desk and it only, it, it costs like one thirty, but you know, you can do payment plans and everything with Amazon, right? Because they want to get everybody using their fucking hardware. Even if you have bad credit, right? Um, the fact that it could play audiobooks was kind of tempting and it syncs with all of your other devices. Um, you know, like that, that, that have the audio or that have the audible app on it. And I mean, the fact that like you could like I could say to something, hey, start playing, um, you know, the new the new Star Trek Discovery novel, Desperate Hours. And it would pick up from where I was on my phone and just to have it like have that stock experience. Now, I mean, yeah, I could set something up with a Raspberry Pi. Oh, yeah. Look, we can do anything with a Raspberry Pi. I know. OK, it's just it's nice to like not have to bother going through all that bullshit. And I mean, it's not bullshit. It can be fun to do. Some of us have the time. Others do not. All right. <laughs> and I want to be respectful of those that do not uh, nor or maybe even that don't have the technical ability. But like there, there's I, I could see that being really sexy because I listen to audiobooks so much that this would be just like a desktop audiobook player. You know, for that alone, it became intriguing. Uh, but anyway, obviously, you know, I'm I'm. I'm just I'm not prepared to take this dive. OK, <laughs> so but they did come out with the new line and it just proves, you know, I mean, this would look great on like your your, you know, on your uh, nightstand next to your bed or something. And it'd make a great alarm clock, obviously. Uh, and yeah, this is just all about what I've been saying for some time. Amazon is just trying to get to, you know, they're trying to take over your house. They want to be in every room in the house. There it is. You choose whether or not you're going to let them to do, you know, let them do that. Uh, whoo. All right. So let's, <laughs> let's, uh, well, let, let's take another, another quick break and then we'll get into our main story for the week. You know, I'll tell you some of the secret sauce, I think with the echo line from Amazon is that because there's no real user interface or anything, and it doesn't really need a whole lot of processing power to do what Alexa mainly does on the echo. 
you know, the first generation Echo, like there's there's not really great arguments to buy the second generation one unless you like the style. It's probably why they had to come out with multiple styles, because otherwise people would be like, well, wait, why would I buy that? Alexa still does what I need it to do. Uh, that's because Amazon just keeps improving the firmware and software that allows the Echo to function. Um, and it's enough because all it is is a speaker and microphones, you know, like there's not a whole lot that you can do to where you need to go through some kind of crazy upgrade cycle. And despite the fact that I think IOT is, you know, the worst market idea in history, uh, pretty much, <laughs> I mean, it's way up there. Um, I got to give credit to Amazon for making things that, you know, can last at least potentially could last as long as you take proper care of them because things that last are important. And that's why I want to tell you about another sovereign tech sponsor. Talk about things made to last. How about precious metals, gold and silver? This is lasting value, storable value of your wealth that you can keep your hands on, baby. Uh, it is, it's really, <laughs> how could you not want it? You know, I mean, the, what is it said old song, the luster of gold or something, or the ecstasy of gold, right? That's the old, uh, the Enio Morricone. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So anyway, gold, silver, platinum, platinum, if you want to get your hands on it and maybe you could use some of your cryptocurrencies, you could use uh, some Bitcoin to get your hands on it. You want to go to Roberts and Roberts brokerage. OK, go to RRBI.co. That's the website. Let them know that the Golden Stallion sent you to get golden, baby, and they will get your hookup. You're going to encounter incredible customer service. They'll also buy precious metals off of you. Uh, so if you want to go that route, that's available too. But you want to go to rrbi.co. They've got great prices, incredibly fast shipping. I mean, they are the real fucking deal. You have to understand. Um, I've dealt with them. Phenomenal. I mean, like, you know, I'm talking from experience. This is one of the best businesses in the world run by a guy who, you know, really like gets it. You know, the, the total tech geek, the whole thing, just like all of us. He's the he is the real deal. Tim Fry, just a sweetheart. So you want to deal with this business because they get everything. They know why you're here, why you're listening to this show. They get your attitude and you always want to deal with businesses that could that respect you and respect, you know, your outlook. Right. So that there it is. Go to RRBI.co. Get your hands on that cold storage. Right. Diversify your wealth. You really you don't want to have all you know, never have all your eggs in one basket. Right. I mean, crypto is awesome and there's a lot of diversification you can do in crypto. But spread that out a little bit. Maybe, you know, while Bitcoin's doing a nice high rise, jump on it and get get some get some gold and silver with that. That way you're diver you're really diversified and some of it's offline. You know, I mean, that's that's a great way to have it is this is an offline storage of wealth. So RRBI.co, uh, Roberts and Roberts Brokerage, shop with them, let them know you heard it on Sovereign Tech. And we thank them so much for being a sponsor of the show, a longtime sponsor of the show. So, all right, let's get into our main story because we're going to talk about what we talk about often on the show, whoo, the future, <laughs> because one of the taglines for Sovereign Tech is be the future. Well, the future, sometimes, you know, some of the directions we look at it are positive. Sometimes the directions we look at it are, uh, are a little more negative. And this is one where I'm feeling a little bit in the middle on this as to whether or not it's positive or negative. So maybe I'll leave it to you, but let's talk about it. And there's parts of this, I got to admit, that went just were below my radar before before now. Uh, so Microsoft just recently. Now, this is not this was not their um, not their big 
a VR mixed reality event that they claimed that they're going to be holding in October. This is not that. Uh, what it was, this is, and I'll read a story here from uh, Windows Central, uh, which is a great, great site, actually run and operated by uh, by an anarchist <laughs> like myself. There's not many of us in the tech world. There really aren't a whole lot of, uh, especially like your left libertarian style anarchists and all that, very few. But Daniel Rubino, uh, who he didn't write this story, but he's kind of the main guy over at Windows Central. He's one of us or, you know, one, like me. Um, anyway, so this is they they had their uh, Ignite event, um, which was Ignite 2017, which is uh, I mean, that's an annual event that Microsoft has held for uh, for some time. So here's here's the headline. Microsoft eyes the future with quantum computing programming language. Ooh, let's read a little bit. As the future of technology shifts towards quantum computing, Microsoft is jumping in early with a new programming language. During its Ignite 2017 keynote, Microsoft showcased a number of short-term announcements centered around the likes of Microsoft 365, commercial Windows uh, Windows 10S machines, and more. However, the company also tipped its hand a bit more on one long-term industry-wide bet, quantum computing. Now, we will get into what, it, you know, I well, t- I'll cut to it right now. I have some audio that I want to play for you. If you don't, we've talked about quantum computing here and there, whether or not it'll ever actually be a practical reality. I know that there's the claims that like like D-Wave has actually made quantum computers. It is debatable whether or not those are really quantum computers. But Microsoft for some time, it, I mean, at least over a year now. And I'm sure is long before that, but they finally kind of, you know, talk about tipping the hand about a year ago. They did tip their hand that, oh, yeah, we're we're knee deep in quantum computing and in getting there. Um, you know, this is something that they've been working on and they're looking on making a real quantum computer, not not the stuff that like D-Wave is doing. OK, uh, so but maybe you don't know what quantum computing is. So I thought it'd be great to play a little bit uh, of an introduction. And I have some audio here uh, that I think is just a fantastic description. It's a few minutes. It's just a fantastic description of what exactly what traditional computing is and how quantum computing uh, compares to that. And of course, I'll talk a little bit about it myself. But uh, let's cut to that audio. For most of our history, human technology consisted of our brains, fire and sharp sticks. While fire and sharp sticks became power plants and nuclear weapons, the biggest upgrade has happened to our brains. Since the 1960s, the power of our brain machines has kept growing exponentially, allowing computers to get smaller and more powerful at the same time. But this process is about to meet its physical limits. Computer parts are approaching the size of an atom. To understand why this is a problem, we have to clear up some basics. A computer is made up of very simple components doing very simple things, representing data, the means of processing it, and control mechanisms. Computer chips contain modules, which contain logic gates, which contain transistors. A transistor is the simplest form of a data processor in computers, basically a switch that can either block or open the way for information coming through. This information is made up of bits, which can be set to either 0 or 1. Combinations of several bits are used to represent more complex information. Transistors are combined to create logic gates, which still do very simple stuff. For example, an AND gate sends an output of 1 if all of its inputs are 1, and an output of 0 otherwise. Combinations of logic gates finally form meaningful modules, say for adding two numbers. 
Once you can add, you can also multiply, and once you can multiply, you can basically do anything. Since all basic operations are literally simpler than first grade math, you can imagine a computer as a group of seven-year-olds answering really basic math questions. A large enough bunch of them could compute anything from astrophysics to Zelda. However, with parts getting tinier and tinier, quantum physics are making things tricky. In a nutshell, a transistor is just an electric switch. Electricity is electrons moving from one place to another, so a switch is a passage that can block electrons from moving in one direction. Today, a typical scale for transistors is 14 nanometers, which is about eight times less than the HIV virus's diameter and 500 times smaller than a red blood cell's. As transistors are shrinking to the size of only a few atoms, electrons may just transfer themselves to the other side of a blocked passage via a process called quantum tunneling. In the quantum realm, physics works quite differently from the predictable ways we're used to, and traditional computers just stop making sense. We are approaching a real physical barrier for our technological progress. To solve this problem, scientists are trying to use these unusual quantum properties to their advantage by building quantum computers. In normal computers, bits are the smallest units of information. Quantum computers use qubits, which can also be set to one of two values. A qubit can be any two-level quantum system, such as a spin in a magnetic field or a single photon. Zero and one are this system's possible states, like the photon's horizontal or vertical polarization. In the quantum world, the qubit doesn't have to be in just one of those; it can be in any proportions of both states at once. This is called superposition. But as soon as you test its value, say by sending the photon through a filter, it has to decide to be either vertically or horizontally polarized. So as long as it's unobserved, the qubit is in a superposition of probabilities for zero and one, and you can't predict which it will be. But the instant you measure it, it collapses into one of the definite states. Superposition is a game changer. Four classical bits can be in one of two to the power of four different configurations at a time. That's 16 possible combinations, out of which you can use just one. Four qubits in superposition, however, can be in all of those 16 combinations at once. This number grows exponentially with each extra qubit. Twenty of them can already store a million values in parallel. A really weird and unintuitive property qubits can have is entanglement—a close connection that makes each of the qubits react to a change in the other's state instantaneously, no matter how far they are apart. This means that when measuring just one entangled qubit, you can directly deduce properties of its partners without having to look. Qubit manipulation is a mind bender as well. A normal logic gate gets a simple set of inputs and produces one definite output. A quantum gate manipulates an input of superpositions, rotates probabilities, and produces another superposition as its output. So a quantum computer sets up some qubits, applies quantum gates to entangle them and manipulate probabilities, and finally measures the outcome, collapsing superpositions to an actual sequence of zeros and ones. What this means is that you get the entire lot of calculations that are possible with your setup all done at the same time. Ultimately, you can only measure one of the results, and it will only probably be the one you want. So you may have to double check and try again. But by cleverly exploiting superposition and entanglement, this can be exponentially more efficient than would ever be possible on a normal computer. So while quantum computers will probably not replace our home computers, in some areas they are vastly superior. One of them is database searching. 
To find something in a database, a normal computer may have to test every single one of its entries. Quantum algorithms need only the square root of that time, which for large databases is a huge difference. The most famous use of quantum computers is ruining IT security. Right now, your browsing, email and banking data is being kept secure by an encryption system in which you give everyone a public key to encode messages only you can decode. The problem is that this public key can actually be used to calculate your secret private key. Luckily, doing the necessary math on any normal computer would literally take years of trial and error. But a quantum computer with exponential speedup could do it in a breeze. Another really exciting new use is simulations. Simulations of the quantum world are very intense on resources, and even for bigger structures such as molecules, they often lack accuracy. So why not simulate quantum physics with actual quantum physics? Quantum simulations could provide new insights on proteins that might revolutionize medicine. Right now, we don't know if quantum computers will be just a very specialized tool or a big revolution for humanity. We have no idea where the limits of technology are, and there's only one way to find out. Okay, so there's, there's a great overview of what quantum computing is, perhaps what it could mean. Uh, you know, again, this is all relying mainly on, you know, the concept of qubits, that ones and zeros could exist at the same time and exponentially. Uh, you know, one computer can do the processing power of, you know, millions or however many. I mean, it, it seems to be almost limitless of just, you know, how much computational power it could do in comparison to even the largest supercomputers, you know, the Cray's or whatever that we have, uh, Cray's and C-R-A-Y, uh, you know, that we have today. Um, so, again, it's a concept. There is debate whether or not these things can actually come into existence. There's a reason we don't have really have one right now. Not really. Okay, uh, but I want to um, I want to read a little bit more of this story about I mean, this is what Microsoft's announcing here at Ignite about ha about creating the first. Well, it might not be the first, but maybe the first uh, mainstream or widespread, widely available uh, quantum computing programming language. I mean, this is a big deal. This is Microsoft once again. You know, like they are looking to do, you know, we were just talking about the 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 echo line from Amazon, the end the entire tech world, the entire industry admitted and sometimes openly and giving named credit to Amazon, which does not happen often. OK, in the tech world, uh, you know, that, wow, Amazon created a new mar market category and they leapfrogged entire generations and categories of devices when they created the Amazon Echo, where they went right from they, they went right from like touchscreen UI to zero UI. Right. And you're just using your voice. They, they just they went there faster than anybody expected. Uh, now, Microsoft, like I've been saying, uh, you can tell with everything that they've been doing in the creators update in Windows 10, uh, their their play with HoloLens and a lot of these other things are also this leapfrog product, but they're creating the infrastructure to where you could develop for these leapfrog products. And this really is them creating more of that infrastructure for the leapfrog products, like say a quantum computer that they might come out, but it's not, it's not exactly all, all that rosy as to where the average, the everyday person can with like say HoloLens, which by the way, it was, it was really, it was actually very uh, vindicating for me. On, uh, on an episode of This Week in Tech, they recently had Robert Scoble on. They had some other people, and they were all talking about uh, mixed reality. And, you know, two things that they said. One is, is they completely agreed with me that Apple just, just shit the bed 
with with their display of augmented reality. And Scoble said, well, they didn't give developers enough time to come up with something creative. But bottom line being, I'm you know, because I, I got some emails from people that I'm guessing are somewhat of Apple fanboys saying, wow, you're way too hard on Apple about augmented reality. No, uh, you know, the full on tech industry experts and analysts that have been in this business for decades as compared to me, which I'm not on my first decade yet, <laughs> but I'm working on it. Uh, you know, no, they said and even they were Apple fanboys and they said that, no, 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 like Apple, Apple fucking sucked at AR uh, at, at that event. So, uh, but the other thing that they said was that nobody has anything like HoloLens. HoloLens is just the premier product in what is happening with augmented reality and virtual reality, which of course come together to be mixed reality. Okay. And which is what I've been saying is that Microsoft is way ahead of the curve on all of this. And maybe they're getting ahead of the curve on quantum computing here. I'm going to, I'm going to read a little bit more. Um, Microsoft has, this is from the, from the story. Link is in the show notes course for episode 245. Microsoft has been working on aspects of building a quantum computing ecosystem for some time, but today it announced one of the first practical applications for developers, a quantum computing programming language. The language will be, quote, deeply integrated into Visual Studio, end quote, which Visual Studio is now available, like, completely cross-platform. Uh, some, most ver- a lot of versions of it are totally for free, and so you are dealing with one of the most used developer pieces of software in the world. Uh, when it comes to, um, you know, when it comes to Visual Studio for Microsoft. Uh, End quote, Microsoft says, so you won't need to be a quantum computing expert to use it. In the short term, code from the language will run in a quantum simulator, which we talked about, uh, Stanley Breaking, and we talked about the fact that quantum computing simulators have been developed uh, recently, which is one of the things that kind of led me to believe that, that sort of started to change my mind. Because for a while I was like, yeah, you know, I, I don't think that this is necessarily going to happen. Like quantum encryption is happening. There's no question about that. Uh, and that's a good thing, because one of the concerns with quantum computers is that it's going to be able to break a lot of the traditional types, uh, you know, the binary types effectively of uh, of encryption that we have now, like effectively a quantum computer computer could break Bitcoin. Now you can make adaptable code and there's there's encryption schemes like uh, like lattice uh, encryption and all this that that might be able to fend that off. Okay. But bottom line being is that when quantum computers come around, well, it's, it's actually worked out very fortuitously in that we already have quantum encryption, which, you know, can quantum computers aren't guaranteed to be able to break into quantum, uh, quantum encryption. So, you know, that little arms race fortunately is, is working to some degree in our favor. If we can get access to these quantum tools. I hate using the word quantum because when most of the time, especially on podcasts and other things, when you hear people start using the word quantum, generally they're going to start, you know, schlepping you some woo bullshit and they have no fucking idea what they're talking about. Um, but in this case, quantum computing is a, I'll say a well-developed science, whether or not the hardware ever comes into existence. But one of the things that started to shift my thinking on that. No, actually quantum computers might become a thing is when there, there was a couple of guys, I want to say might've been out of, out of SRI that uh, they developed um, an actual simulate, like a quantum computer within a simulator more or less. And I mean, I'm being very broad in my statement there, but yeah, so, so this can be a thing and, and you could test out whatever you write up in this quantum programming language within visual visual studio um, itself. So, but then uh, reading on with the story, however, in the future, programs built with the programming language will be able to run on actual topological 
quantum computers from Microsoft. Quote, the system, which will be available as a free preview by the end of the year, also includes libraries and tutorials so developers can familiarize themselves with quantum computing. It's designed to work at a higher level of, of abstraction so that developers without uh, quantum expertise can actually call quantum sub subroutines or write sequences of programming instructions working up to writing a complete quantum program, end quote. Quantum computing is seen as the next big frontier in computing, as it would theoretically enable incredibly fast calculations for things that would take years, centuries, or even, Microsoft says, quote, the lifetime of the universe, end quote, uh, to calculate with even the most advanced examples of our current technology. That could open up doors to solving extremely complex problems involved with healthcare or energy, for example. One immediately tangible impact it could have, Microsoft says, is in drastically speeding up the time it takes to process an AI training algorithm. Uh, we're still far away from quantum computing hitting any mainstream use. However, if you're a developer, you can sign up to participate in Microsoft's quantum language preview now, which I put in uh, the link in the show notes if you want to, you know, if you're that enterprising and you want to jump on board with it rock and roll, you know, have a, have a great time, but let's, let's talk about this. Okay. <laughs> because so this is similar to what they're doing with mixed the Microsoft. What Microsoft is doing here is very similar to what they're doing with mixed reality, where with windows 10, with a lot of these different apps, you know, paint 3d, even something as simple as that. A lot of this other stuff, 3d builder and whatever, they are giving you the tools to build the infrastructure and the apps and the software and whatever else to take advantage of these new computing platforms like mixed reality, which technically could be described as a computing platform, um, certainly a user interface, or in this case, quantum computing. So they know quantum computers are going to be a thing. So we got to start getting people on board with starting to think uh, to a quantum computing level. So let's create the programming language that allows people to develop for that. So this is, you know, and they're releasing it largely for, for free through Visual Studio, even though it's not exactly for free. But, you know, why would they do this? Why wouldn't they just like have their own internal teams develop all of this stuff? Well, the things that people want to do, look, Microsoft, while it's a large company, does not re represent the bulk of humanity and does not encapsulate the entire of the intelligence, uh, you know, of, uh, of intellectuals and intelligent people and, and developers and whatever else within humanity. You know, the, the amazing things that crop up in, in technology in general, and especially in the quote-unquote internet age, which we're still technically a part of, okay, the amazing things that have cropped up have often, have not come generally from the tech giants. It just comes from the fact that there's an open platform of some kind, and people, or at least there's an open uh, ability to develop, and you're, you know, somebody in a garage where there's a little bit too much solder smoke coming out is doing the developing for it. That's the importance of having very open platforms. Okay, Microsoft knows this. All right, in fact, actually, it was also announced uh, at, at Ignite that Microsoft is, I think they became a platinum or premium, whatever the highest level is, uh, uh, supporter of the open source initiative. Not surprising, considering that Microsoft is the, uh, I, it's either Microsoft or Facebook now. I mean, like the, the number kind of shifts, but they are the number one contributors to open source code in general. OK, uh, so we were dealing with a very different Microsoft. In fact, I've even said I've been theorizing for some time and all of this is going to prove a point um, that I've been making. But I think it's important to bring up. OK, uh, I you know, I've, I've said that. Yeah. And in fact, actually, Microsoft engineers have hinted at this, that Windows Windows 10 could or Windows itself could become uh, open source. And now, you know, Microsoft has their Andromeda OS that we were talking about last week. OK, where. You know, this is that next 
that next OS, right? That next level OS, which probably has some degree of quantum computing in mind uh, with that as well, which is why they needed to evolve Windows to this next level, that being Andromeda OS, right? Now, the point that I've made and, and, and kind of what's really being hinted at here, nobody's saying that you are going to be able to buy a quantum computer. In fact, you probably won't be able to. What Microsoft is really developing, and they've even used the verbiage, and this is what ha- this is what you know went under my radar that I didn't notice that they were announcing like a year ago, probably because I was so livid about something else that they were doing. Okay, but they are they what the, the actual term they have is quantum computing as a platform. Okay, what this means is that you're not going to have a quantum computer. Microsoft's going to have the quantum computers, but you're going to have devices, be it something that looks like a laptop or a phone or who knows what, or it's going to be HoloLens maybe, you're going to have devices that access their quantum computers. Quantum computing, my point being, just very in brief, the future, quantum computers will, you know, may likely be a part of that. But when they are a part of it, it's going to be like the cloud. It's going to be the quantum cloud. All right. Maybe that's the first time anybody said that word. I don't know. Or that term. But it's going to be a quantum cloud where, okay, yeah, there's going to be quantum computers, but you're just going to have access to them. You're not actually going to own one yourself. You're going to have access to like Microsoft Azure, their entire, you know, their server farms and everything. Those are all going to be, you know, become like effectively probably quantum computers. And in fact, it's interesting because Microsoft was also one of the developers. We talked about this about two years ago. Microsoft is one of the developers of a technology that allows you to modify and to scale the hardware capabilities of 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 stock servers today like processors that you could kind of build on top of is that to adapt it to quantum computing uh fuck i imagine so how about the other thing here's another i mean these are these are a lot of stories that we've talked about on sovereign tech that microsoft has been doing for years that are now it looks like finally this is all all coming together for you okay or all, all coming together for people at least it's coming together in my mind The other thing that I thought was very interesting that Microsoft was doing was that they had been testing off the shores of the United States. They had been testing underwater servers, okay, where they put, you know, servers inside of a container and then they, you know, they just drop them off into effectively into the ocean off the coast. Now, there's environmental concerns with that, which I brought up in that. You know, like you could be kind of superheating the ocean and, and you could affect a lot of uh, real, real, e- you know, ecological systems, uh, ecosystems and, you know, entire species of whatever, you know, whatever living creature could end up dying because of that. Um, but I think that they're testing this out with your stock servers. But here's the and, and I didn't realize this until like literally after I read about this, you know, what was being talked about at Ignite 2017. Um, and I also think this is why Microsoft is supporting the open source initiative so much because they know that's how they're going to get people buying into. They're going to have the platform. They're going to have the quantum computers that everybody needs to access and they could charge for that access. So they don't need to make money off of software anymore. Okay. They like all they need is they just need the hardware. They need the, or the hardware. They need the quantum computers. And then you just pay to access their quantum servers. You know, I'm, I'm using that term, the quantum cloud, whatever. Okay. That's your future. Now, One of the problems with quantum computing and where a lot of people have felt that quantum computing would be impractical, myself included, is that it takes so much uh, 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 hardware. It takes so much uh, uh, engineering 
to cool a quantum computer. Like even D-Wave has run into this. The reason the D-Wave machines are like the size, I mean, they're not like, uh, what was it, ENIAC? Was that, that that warehouse size computer from the 50s? It's not like ENIAC, but they're these huge, I mean, it looks like a giant board cube, right? In a, it's sitting off to the side in some room, but it's huge. You know, it's bigger than, than, than a few people, okay? Uh, the reason that it's that size isn't so much because of like giant processors or transistor, you know, whatever, anything like that. Okay. The reason it's that huge is because of the cooling that it needs. The bulk of it is a, just a giant liquid cooler. Now, can you get a bigger liquid cooler than the Pacific ocean or the Atlantic ocean? No. So I think that's, that's really why they're testing this out. These server farms is that it's because they're going to start dumping quantum computers or quantum servers into the ocean to allow for that cooling. Now, again, I brought up that, yes, there are environmental concerns and they need to be continually monitored and addressed. All right. But by, by individuals, I'm not talking about any kind of government action. Okay. But folks give a shit about the environment really. Okay. Or about the ecology. I don't like to use the word environment because I think environmentalism is a cult. Uh, but, but ecology is a very real science, a very legit thing that, that you want to pay attention to. Okay. So, uh, I, I think that that's that's really what's going on here is that a lot of these different tests that on their own look interesting. And I didn't you know, and I, I thought the idea of having underwater servers wasn't a terrible idea either um, or even having uh, what we talked about recently where it was developed that you could have quantum encryption. If you remember two weeks ago, I think it was it was maybe it was episode 242 or 243 where we talked about how they were creating um the ability for quantum for for a laser shot quantum encryption uh, uh you know data connection between underwater how they were testing this out now that wasn't microsoft but microsoft could totally use this if they were having a bunch of different quantum computers sitting underneath the sea oh you better believe they that they would be jumping on this so i mean you have there is a literal perfect storm or well that's a metaphor so it's not literal but you get my point there is a perfect storm of of confluence of a bunch of different technologies coming together that lead to what I think is what Microsoft, at least Microsoft, and I'm sure other companies too, really has in mind. They're at least the ones being open and honest that they're developing it. Okay. Which I guess some kudos to them. Um, again, Microsoft's going to become an open source company. If the only reason you hate Microsoft, uh, it's still to this day is because they're not open source. That's going to end up changing They're In fact, they're funding open source. They're the, what they're pretty much the largest funder, not just, not just, uh, uh, uh developer and a contributor to open source code. But now with what they're, how they're funding the open source initiative, they're also like the number one funder of everything that's happening. That's open source. And the future is absolutely for, uh, open source, but the future might also be a quantum cloud, a quantum computing cloud that people just access and people don't actually have their own computers anymore. Are there inherent dangers with that kind of future? You fucking bet. When you don't have actual control of the process of your you know processing power and what you want to develop and all that, and you're relying on a central point of failure, like a bunch of quantum computers run by Microsoft. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, central point of failure is always a problem, right? And that is getting away from our potential peer to peer future. So, I mean, but there's the chance that quantum computing could get in the hands of everyday individuals and it wouldn't just be held by the tech giants or by Microsoft in particular. Okay. There's, there's the chance that that could happen, but that's something people need to start talking about because I think this is absolutely what's going down is Microsoft is planning on, I mean, like office 365, that's you buying into Microsoft's platform already. 
if they just shifted to a quantum platform and they've already talked about that. That was part of the verbiage at, at Ignite 2017 as part of, you know, part of their lingo was saying, oh, yeah, I mean, like, just imagine it seems stupid that you'd want to use quantum computers for this. But they're right. Imagine, you know, what you could do, with the spreadsheets you could do and all this different stuff where you could add in AI. And they talked about this. They're adding an AI to uh, or, you know, machine learning more particularly into Office 365. And imagine if all that's bolstered by quantum computing and everything. I mean, it's it's yeah. I mean, there's real applications to be, to be had there. But you just buy into that subscription model of ten dollars a month, and woo, or maybe when maybe when they they start releasing the the quantum, you know, when they start actually developing and creating quantum computers, and it becomes that quantum cloud like I described, uh, they could charge you twenty, thirty, fifty dollars a month, get all this extra power and processing and everything else, and and all these different helpful tools and features from machine learning that would bolster, which Microsoft themselves says they wanted to use it to bolster machine learning, uh, you know, to be baked into whatever you're doing in the Office 365 suite. Yeah, people are going to pay. They're going to they're probably going to pay a pretty good price for that. You know, I mean, because quantum computers, you would hope. I mean, like even just think of something simple. And I'm thinking really simple because quantum computing could solve huge problems. OK, but on, on a very small level, imagine how, how a quantum computer could handle grammar. Right. You could you could get genuinely great grammar suggestions while you're writing your novel in word or something. I mean, this could happen. I'm not saying that all this is a good thing. OK, I'm just saying that this is I think this is the direction that things are going. I, I had a bit of an epiphany this week um, that uh, there's a lot of technologies that are really all developing at the same time that lead exactly towards what I just described. Uh, that, that Microsoft is planning really, I think, on, on a, you know, quantum computing as a platform. It's their own fucking term that you're not going to have computers. You're just going to have thin clients, as they call it, that will will access these quantum computers. So anyway, I thought that that was interesting. Um, I don't know that I have the time to look into the quantum programming languages. I would love to just from a, just from a, a personal armchair academic uh, perspective. And maybe I will get into that because I. I I spent a couple of years like really, really diving deep into quantum cryptography. Uh, so this this would be an interesting thing to see, you know, how maybe that would apply to that. But uh, we'll see about that in the future. Anyway, whoo, let's get on to uh, let, let, let's let's change things up here. But uh, let's take a quick break and got to thank another one of my sponsors. You know, like I just said, one of the areas where quantum computing is going to make things interesting is in the cryptocurrency space. Uh, and will there be cryptocurrencies that take advantage of these quantum computers? That would be pretty wild, but of course they're centralized. That might not be the best thing in the world. But if you want to keep an eye on the cryptocurrency space right now, the best place to do that to get prices, news, all of it, and reviews, CryptoCompare.com. You want to go to CryptoCompare.com. It's a tab I leave open all the time. They they keep an eye on the prices for so, I mean, there's so many cryptocurrencies out there right now, but they definitely keep an eye on the big ones. They keep an eye on Zcash. They keep an eye on Bitcoin, Litecoin, and all that. In fact, you know, Edward Snowden said Zcash, like he was a huge fan, uh, which, cool. Okay. Uh, so there was, uh, and, and he said the reason was, is because it's really the only cryptocurrency that has genuine academic cryptographers, um, you know, developing for it and, and working on it. And people can argue about that all they want, but... I think he's got a point. So, but if you want to keep an eye on all of this stuff and keep an eye on that kind of news and whatever else is going on, you just go to CryptoCompare.com and I thank them so much for being a sponsor of Sovereign Tech. All right, let's shake things up. Though, you know, I didn't mention it, but there was, and this is the thing, like I said, that kind of went under my radar, but when they first, when Microsoft first used that term quantum computing as a platform, people were already theorizing what they called a quantum Cortana. 
And like I said, Cortana's really the operating system now. And that's the thing is that, and this just, this, this going towards quantum computing as a platform, as a service effectively, what do you call it? Quas? I don't know. <laughs> uh, that this would, you know, this leads to, this points in the direction that really Windows isn't the main operating system anymore. Um, now it's, you know, now it's Azure. Now it's their server farms, which the way you interface with that mainly, or what they hope you'll be, the way you'll be interfacing with it, is through Cortana itself. And you'll be talking with it, uh, you know, through a, through no user interface whatsoever. You'll just talk to it um, or it'll be a very basic one and, you know, there'll be other options. But anyway, yeah, so it just kind of, it really, to me, it bolsters my point that Cortana is now the operating system. Uh, and so, yeah, you can even type that, you know, go to DuckDuckGo, put in Quantum Cortana. You're going to see that that come up. But anyway, uh, oddly enough, CCleaner just came up, just popped up on my computer, <laughs> which is what I want to talk about next. Um, yeah, I mean, and look, hey, quantum quantum Cortana. I mean, just picture it. You know, you're you're baking in a lot more uh, uh, machine learning, potentially AI that would make that would give Cortana a huge edge. No pun intended, uh, in comparison to other virtual assistants. So this is definitely a race that's going on. Uh, but CCleaner, uh, this is so the the malware outbreak on CCleaner uh, was something I I don't know if I even got to hint at it last week. But CCleaner is a very, very popular piece of software uh, that is mainly for Windows. It, they also have it for Android, and it's been experimented with on other platforms. But it's by the company Puriform. Been around forever. It's one of the first things I install on a PC for a couple of reasons. One is, is that it does a great job of cleaning up the memory cache on your, uh, you know, on, on your laptop or whatever. And to, to where sometimes you could clean up like multiple gigabytes of space on a hard drive. You know, you just run it and it gets rid of it. And there's varying dangers with running CCleaner because it could get rid of all the cookies and like all of your passwords and your web history and other things that exist with, uh, you know, within a web browser or whatever. But it's gotten smarter about that. Now it does what it calls an intelligent cookie scan. It's been doing that for a little while. Um, also, it can clean up your registry, the, your Windows registry, which can really speed things up where it gets rid of, uh, you know, entries that aren't used. Because every time you start up your computer or your computer is doing a process, will often do a check of everything that's in the registry and that can really slow things down if there's things in there that aren't needed. And, and often if you're, you know, deleting and installing and deleting various software over and over again or something like that, there'll be a lot of leftover gunk effectively on your hard drive and CCleaner cleans all of that up. It's a very, and it does more than that, but it's a very handy um, piece of software. But recently it was discovered that there was uh, in fact, I'll read the story here from, um, uh, from Ars Technica, the recent CCleaner malware, outbreak is much worse than it initially appeared, according to newly unearthed evidence. The evidence shows that the CCleaner malware infected at least 20 computers from a carefully selected list of high-profile technology companies with a mysterious payload. Previously, researchers found no evidence that any of the computers infected by the booby-trapped version of the widely used CCleaner utility had received a second-stage payload the backdoor was capable of delivering. And this is exactly what was going on, is that CCleaner would put in a registry entry, okay, into, and, and I put in the show notes, there's a link that shows you how to check if you had the registry entry, because for... For a couple months, if you were over the summer of 2017, if you were updating, if you updated to a specific version or a couple uh, a couple versions of CCleaner, then you could have had um, this this registry entry installed. Now, the caveat is, like my computers weren't infected, 
the caveat is, is that it only worked on the 32-bit versions of CCleaner. So if you're running 64-bit software, if you're running a 64-bit version of Windows 10, if you're running 64-bit version of CCleaner, you didn't get infected at all. So you don't have to worry about it. But if you're running 32-bit, yes, you want to look into this. Um, Anyway, so yeah, uh, so the new evidence called from uh, from data left on a command and control server during the last four days attackers operated it shows otherwise. Of 700,000 infected PCs, 20 of them belonging to highly targeted companies received the second stage, according to a, an analysis published on Wednesday by, in the stories from uh, September 21st, by Cisco Systems uh, Talos Group. Because the CCleaner backdoor was active for 31 days, the total number of infected computers is likely at least in the order of hundreds researchers from a vast, uh, the, the, uh, antivirus company that acquired CCleaner in July said in their own analysis, uh, published Thursday, right? So a vast bought Pureform. I actually had that as like a, a story for, um, within the, the, the show notes for, for the foreplay, uh, way back then, or not way back, it's just a couple months ago, but, uh, we, we didn't get to it. So from September 12th to September 16th, the highly advanced second stage was reserved for computers inside 20 companies or web properties, including Cisco, Microsoft, Gmail, VMware, Akamai, Sony, and Samsung. The 20 computers that installed the payload were from eight of those targeted uh, organizations, Avast said, without identifying which ones. Again, because the data covers only a small fraction of the time the backdoor was active, both Avast and Talos believe the true number of targets and victims was much, much bigger. Okay, so... Here's the thing, and, and it was the 32-bit versions of CCleaner from it's 5.33.6162 to, and also CCleaner Cloud uh, version 1.07.3191. Again, only the 32-bit versions um, were were affected, and the point, be, like what it created, a backdoor where people could eject pretty much anything that they wanted to onto the computer that's infected. Um, with this version, with that specific 32-bit version of CCleaner. That's what was going down. But now the evidence shows is that there's code within there that was targeting the, the, the backdoors. Like it was very, very targeted of what they were going after. Now, like I said, CCleaner, very popular piece of software. I've been using it for over 10 years. Uh, I mean, just very popular piece of software, very handy piece of software. Uh, but... It doesn't look like whoever put, you know, created this, uh, 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 you know, this version, this ex- exploited version of CCleaner. They weren't really going after the everyday person. Now it appears they were really going after some big companies. They, well, again, they're going after Google. They're going after Microsoft, uh, you, you know, the big names. Some people are theorizing now they think that this was either China or Russia uh, that were actually engaged in this, that this is like a state sponsored attack. Uh, I don't have enough evidence to make that kind of claim. And that kind of claim gets used way too often, too wildly banted about uh, that. I I'm not going to say that that's what that is, but I did put in the show notes um, exactly how, how to clean it up. And some people were wondering, OK, is there an alternative to C cleaner? Because some people rightfully so have the concern that when a larger company ends up buying out, uh, you know, like a small company that you've been using their software and you've trusted their software for a long time that, Oh, suddenly shit's going to change. And you know, like the fundamentals of the app or software that you're using uh, are no longer going to be true anymore. And so you don't trust it. Okay. Like this happened with LastPass when LastPass got bought out. A lot of people are like, all right, see you later. I'm leaving LastPass. Uh, And some people I think 
felt the same way about Sea Cleaner. Like, wow, all right, they got bought out by Avast. Well, I don't fucking trust Avast. So see you later, Sea Cleaner. I'm not going to use that. Uh, what can you use instead? Well, you can use Bleachbit. Okay, and I put a link in the show notes for that. It's a bleachbit.org. It's completely open source. It does mostly what CCleaner does, and it does a, a fairly good job of it. Um, you just want to be careful, like its intelligent cookie scan isn't as good as CCleaner. So you could end up not, not that, I mean, if you're signing into like Google Chrome with your Google account, it's not like you're going to really lose anything, but you could lose your web history and some other stuff. And, and you might have to re-enter passwords and whatever, which that's not even a hard process anymore, especially if you're using something like LastPass uh, when you run um, this, this kind of cleaner, uh, like Bleachbit or CCleaner in this case. So I definitely recommend Bleachbit. It's the best of the bunch. Is there, it's the best alternative um, that's out there uh, for this sort of thing. But, you know, the other answers are simple. Again, if you weren't using a 32-bit version of CCleaner, you have nothing to worry about. And it's easy to tell. You just open up CCleaner and go to the About little tab on the left-hand side, and it'll tell you whether or not it's 32-bit or 64-bit. And there's a registry key that you can delete that will get rid of the back door as well if you need to. Uh, again, link is in the show notes for that. Uh, but the real answer here is, of course, don't use Windows. <laughs> you know, Just don't. But like we were just talking about, that's going to become harder and harder. Like it was already difficult, but now it's going to become harder and harder because Microsoft's developing in many ways, the, the future of how, you know, of, of, of commerce, of how things get solved and, and interactions and all this with HoloLens and whatever else. But, you know, maybe all of that will be platform agnostic and you could still use Linux if you really wanted to. But yeah, keep, keep that in mind, <laughs> you know, that you walk away from Microsoft now. I mean, there's a reason a lot of people are converting from using Apple computers that they're going to the surface line for Microsoft because they see that's where they get to be creative. And not only just that they get to be creative like they've always been, but the new tools, you know, the new tools of what to develop uh, or, you know, taking advantage of the new platforms like mixed reality or now quantum computing. Apple's not saying shit about any of this. They are so far behind. I mean, well, I mean, we knew that anyway. They, they have been for, you know, they've really been far behind since like 2007. But hey, there you go. So, <laughs> so the C Cleaner malware, it's serious, uh, but it's really not something that's affecting the everyday individual. Uh, and a lot of people are using 64-bit Windows and don't even really realize it. And they're probably, if they had C Cleaner installed, it probably auto-installed uh, or auto-chose for you a 64-bit version. So most people, I think, are okay. Uh, but it is interesting that whoever was doing this was going after some big, big companies. Maybe it was state-sponsored, but it's just as believable that it's the fucking U.S. government as it is China or, or Russia, you know? <laughs> so I'm not just going to instantly say, oh, well, it wasn't the U.S. Wink, wink. Yeah, no, it prob if, if I was going to point fingers, anytime something malicious goes on, I mean, I point fingers at the U.S. government in the first place, you know, because the U.S. government's the one that creates all the boogeymen. So why don't you just go right to the creator of the boogeymen to see where the problem came from? But anyway, all right, uh, let's uh, let's change things up again here a bit. So that, that was our little hack sex segment, even though, like I said, I'm not really doing segments. Uh, we'll get back to doing the segments probably next week because we got to get ready for the Halloween episode, which the Halloween episode won't actually release on the week of Halloween. It will probably release a week or two after that. And I'm not going to do the changes in intros because we always do the big changes on the intros. I'm not going to do those 
they won't be for episode 250, I don't believe. They will be for, you know, a couple episodes past that. They won't be till after the Halloween special. So for those that are looking forward to that, where we do a nice fictional episode of Sovereign Tech, which might cover a lot of the topics that we're talking about right now, um, you know, that that's coming. But don't expect it's the Halloween episode, but don't expect it like right on Halloween. Um, you know, just just because this I'm I'm. <laughs> you have no idea how much fun this is going to be in it, but it's going to take a, it's going to take time to, to really put it all uh, together. So anyway, all right, let's uh, let's start talking up some other stuff. In fact, let's get into some game talk. Um, I just recently. Uh, I well, I, I told this story uh, on actually on Sex and Science Hour last night, which, by the way, go to Sex and Science Hour dot com. We're well into season four, halfway in, actually. And uh, it's been a great time. And last night was a fun episode. But I talked a little bit about my travels, what it took to get uh, to get a, a, a SNES classic, which is what I'll call it, which is the Super Nintendo Entertainment System classic. OK, which is a re-release. And we've been highlighting it and been keeping up on it. It's a re-release of the Super Nintendo with 21 built in games on it. Uh, now, first blush, first review. What do I have to say about it? It's fucking awesome. <laughs> I mean, it is it is really, really cool. Like it, you know, I don't have an NES classic because there's a whole fiasco around that, which we've talked about uh, already, like ad nauseum on on Sovereign Tech. Uh, th- this thing, like if the NES classic is remotely like the Super Nintendo or like the, the, the SNES classic. Man, I wish I had an NES classic because this is so cool. The presentation on it is uh, is is really cool. So the thing is literally the size of the palm of my hand and you plug it in, you know, it has an HDMI port, which is great. You know, that's one of the big advantages of having this thing. Look, don't, don't do not message me. Do not. I've already gotten it from too many people. Well, I could just do this with a raspberry Pi. You don't fucking get it. You don't get it. You don't understand a, the ease of use of doing it this way. B, um, some of the there are some interesting features that you're not going to really do on an emulator, uh, not as easily anyway. Uh, C, am I am I doing one, two, three, or ABC? I don't know. But you know, going being in the line, like I was, I was at Best Buy yesterday morning, early in the morning, and I was in line. I was actually the first in line uh, at the time. I, I talked about this more on Patreon. You can listen. You you can find out a lot about that there. Um, it like being in that line and talking with people. That's part of the fucking experience of getting one of the, you know, of getting a video game console. And even if it's like this one, which is even better because usually you expect to interact with people who, you know, remember the, the retro gaming days, the glory days, you know, whatever with. And, and you could talk about playing Super Mario RPG and all, and all this. And that kind of happened while I was in line. And it was really nice. You don't understand. Yeah, I know you could technically do it with other shit. No fucking shit. I run a tech show. But it's more than that. There's 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 a culture around it. There's um, there's there's so many little ineffables that exist around this. Okay, and there's even just the ease of use, just the fact that no, I I just power it on and it it looks exactly. It's it's literally just a miniaturized version of the Super Nintendo without you know a cartridge slot. I mean, it has like a mock-up of that slot, but you can't actually put a cartridge in. Um, and you know, you just you flick the power switch just like you did with the old Nintendo. It turns on. And you have your TV on and, you know, it's powered by a USB cable or by an ad- USB adapter, however you have to do it. My, my TV has a uh, has a USB port on it, so I could just power it right off of the TV. That's really fucking convenient. Yep, you could do it with the Raspberry Pi, too, I know, but whatever. It, it, it works. I just plug it in, I turn the power on, and it works. That is worth something. 
Okay. It's not just, you know, without having to deal the hassle, the Raspberry Pi and all that stuff. You want to do that stuff? You have you have a great fucking day with that. You rock and roll, baby. In fact, I put a link in the show notes that, that did a great job of really, like, just picking on these people who are like, well, you could just do the Raspberry Pi. And, like, it has this great, great uh, thumbnail or uh, uh, a featured image on it of just this really smug-ass looking guy. And, and you know, oh, it's so annoying. I know. I wanted this. Okay, I wanted it this way. I wanted the cool, yeah, oh, you could you could put a Raspberry Pi in a Super Nintendo packaging and then it could look just like, it's not the same. It's just not the same. So anyway, let's talk, let's talk about the, uh, and, I, and I've said that back when the NES Classic and these same horseshit arguments were going around. Okay, uh, and you could play all the different games. Now, I like, I like the curation. I actually really like the curation. There's something to be said for, you know, having the opportunity or not, not the opportunity, but, but having like the limited set and like this, 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 you know, very particularly chosen set that makes it very interesting. There, there's a beauty to this. There's a precision uh, to this. And I'll tell you the first thing, and I said this on sex and science hour last night, but the first thing that I noticed, and this is where the raspberry Pi is not going to deliver this. Uh, it's just not the controllers feel so good. They are so tight. They are so, I mean, they feel so quality they're not, you know, they're not exactly like the Super Nintendo controllers back in the day. They're the same size and large design and largely designed, but they just feel so good. There's the, the controllers have such fantastic production levels on their own. It feels awesome, you know, and I'm all right. Maybe you can get a converter and you could convert the the, the funny pin system that that Nintendo uh, proprietary pin system that Nintendo has to connect a controller to their uh, consoles. Fine, you could do that and then you could have it. But then you're going to end up buying these controllers, which the controllers themselves sell for like 30, 40 bucks. You're almost going to end up paying for the system. So buy the fucking system. (laughs) Oh, man, these arguments, they got to go away. Uh, Gamers, so brutal. They can be so brutal. But yeah, the controls just feel incredible. I played Star Fox at first. Here's something that I thought was kind of bullshit, okay? So the list of games, you can look, the link in the show notes gives you the list of games. I mean, but it's all the big ones. You know, there's Star Fox, there's even Star Fox 2, which we've talked about. The fact that that was very interesting. Yes, eventually somebody's going to just rip that ROM off of that system and we'll make it available for every other emulator because it is a finished version of Star Fox 2, which the ROM that we had previous was not a finished version. Okay, fine, great, good, that's nice. Um, I'll talk more about Star Fox 2 in a second. The uh, you have Mario Kart, which plays phenomenal, and and there's cool like you can do you can do um, in the when you go into the options for the system itself, you can have because these games are all pan and scan, right? They're all four by three. They're not widescreen. They're not sixteen by nine. And you can add in like backgrounds that actually shift colors and kind of move. I mean, like, like there's, there's some really cool things that you can do with that, and you can have different video settings where it can be the upscaled version for HDMI. Or it's well, it's not exactly upscaled, but well, yeah, upscale is the best term you can use for it. You can have where it, it it where the system itself inputs the CRT scan lines, even though nobody uses a CRT anymore, to give it that classic look. Or you could do pixel perfect, where it's like it's literally it's not upscaling at all; it's just raw putting up you know that that very low resolution image on there. All of these are very nice features, some of which emulators can do, too. I understand that. But it's nice to have it in that one package that all you got to do is flick an on switch, you know, and, and, and start messing with the controllers and away you go. And, and, and you know, really, really slick. Um, so now one of the things that I think was uh, was kind of bullshit about it was that t- you have to unlock Star Fox 2. And, and I, I kind of feel like, no, no, no. I just laid down eighty dollars. 
and that's how much the system costs. You give me access to all 21 games, not fucking 20 of them. All you have to do to unlock it is play the is beat the first level or, you know, stage one of the first Star Fox game, which I went and did. And it's not the hardest thing in the world. It's really not. You don't even have to go through training. Just just jump into the game, go through stage one and and away you go. Uh, In fact, you know, with Star Fox, like I remember when I was when I was younger, I was a little intimidated by the training level. Because the training, they want you to fly in formation with everything that uh, the rest of the Star Fox team is doing, and it's it's really hard to to like to match. I mean, you have to learn their motions and everything. Uh, like the, I remember playing that, and that's all I played was the training, and I thought that that was like so intimidating. I didn't want to play Star Fox after the fact, but then I ended up playing like uh, you know Tie Fighter and a bunch of different flight simulators for PC, and. Uh, and then I, it's like, oh yeah, no, I want to play Star Fox because like this is Nintendo doing it, and they do they do a great job. Um, I think the selection of games is is fantastic. I mean, there's there's some things that I wish were on there. I wish the Super Nintendo version of Doctor Mario, which has Doctor Mario and Tetris, as well as what's called Mix Match, where you play different levels. One level will be Tetris, one level will be Doctor Mario. Uh, I wish that was on there. I wish Super Mario All Stars was on there. Um, you know, there's a lot of games I can think of that that really I think belong on um that, that that would belong on that system but they're not there so you know whatever but with the games the 21 games that are there are phenomenal the addition of star fox 2 is really cool again i think it's bullshit that you have to unlock it it's like oh come on <laughs> you know really just just give me that one uh but there's nice features there's the rewind feature which allows you to like if you made a move say you made a jump and you fell into some chasm on uh, like on yoshi's island or something you could you can just hit uh, rewind and it will it will take you back a few seconds to where you can redo that move and i thought that that was pretty nice you have uh, save states where it can be saved at any point that you happen to be at um, that's a really nice feature as well uh, i wish you know speaking of some other games that i wish were on there i wish the rest of the donkey kong country uh a series was on there Don- the first donkey kong country is on there but I would have loved it if the rest of the series was not that I can't play a lot of these games on uh, on my new 2DS uh, XL, because a lot of them are available in the virtual console, including all the Donkey Kong Country games. And of course, on, the you know, on the 3DS, 2DS, you have uh, Donkey Kong Country uh, Returns 3D on there, which that's an that's a badass game. So, I mean, anything missing like Demon's Crest and stuff like this, I really could play on on another Nintendo system. So it's not that big a deal. Uh, but you know, collecting the, all of these 21 games for $80, like you'd easily, you know, a super Nintendo game on the virtual console usually costs anywhere between six to $15, depending upon the game you, you know, you're, you're getting, I mean, at, you know, times that by 20, I mean, it's a value. It, it It's worth it. Like based upon how you could say legitimately buy these games or legally buy these games. Of course you do emulators while well, you just download them and you know, you don't pay a dime, but I, I think there, there's a beauty to this. Now, the other interesting thing about this whole system about the SNES classic. Okay. So the, the games play great. It looks awesome on a huge modern TV. I mean, it really looks good. The sound is there and they kept the sound kind of consistent, even within the, the menu, you know, the new menu system that they have where you choose your games and all that. Uh, like it just, it just has that classic Nintendo feel, which is really nice. Um, the interesting thing is, is that it's using the same, as far as the, the technicals of the system itself, it's using the same uh, uh, board, you know, the same processor and everything that the NES Classic used. In fact, 
it's like cut the same as the one for the NES Classic. So they're just they're just recycling that board, okay? Uh, which is fine because that means it's you know that I think they will deliver on their promise that in 2018 they will re-release the NES Classic. Um, it's not a very powerful board. I was under the impression, and I'm sure I said this on Sovereign Tech at some point. Somebody had I I, I don't know where I'd heard it or read it, but that the board was more powerful than what was in the Wii. That is not true. It's actually a fairly weak board. So if we are going to end up with that, uh, with, you know, the N64 classic, which I think is a foregone conclusion, I think it's going to happen. Okay. Uh, because these are just selling too well. It'd be stupid to not do that. Um, the N64 classic, they're going to have to make another board for that. So that'll be interesting. Um, how, you know, how that ends up, uh, uh, taking shape. And the other thing with the N64 classic, you know, like that's that's a system where I think if you put 30 games on there and that's another thing, too, they probably have to add on some more memory, perhaps, to the board to be able to do the N64 classic. If you add it on, I mean, like if you did 30 games, I actually think the amount of games that you could count that were great for the N64 probably chalked up to 30. You know, like, like I, I think you could have a very all inclusive package um, on there with you know where you could play everything that's great and i know there's a certain somebody out there <laughs> who who would say there better be uh, conquer's bad fur fur day on on the n64 classic i agree i absolutely agree that game needs to be a part of it um and i know you know also the other the other game i guess that i would want on the n64 classic would be uh, goldeneye and some people have and I, i've heard this from a few people and I, I actually agree with this statement is that don't play don't play GoldenEye, which is like, look, GoldenEye was a seminal game for the N64 because and we'll talk more about the SNES Classic in a second. OK, but I want to I want to break into this a little bit. The the N64, uh, you know, was had had the four controller ports on that. That alone is going to be interesting how to see how Nintendo handles that. Are they going to give you the original four ports or is it just going to be two? Um, I think that. Yeah, like that that game changed everything when you had Goldeneye because it was like localized. You know, you had four different screens and if you had four people hanging out, you were all watching your little screen. And of course, it also created the problem of like screen watching where you're watching where some you could see where somebody else is because they're sitting right next to you. Uh, but regardless, it was a lot of fun. Goldeneye really was genuinely like 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 a really great time. Uh, but it doesn't hold up today. It, it's not it's not the same anymore. I, I actually kind of agree with this. There's a website called GoldeneyeVault.com. I think where you can do add-ons to GoldenEye and it significantly uh, fixes just how well this game works. There's a chance that GoldenEye won't appear on the system at all. I mean, maybe put Perfect Dark on there, which is also by Rare, uh, the the developing house Rare. Uh, that that might be the better choice as far as that goes. But I I think just for nostalgia purposes, I think putting GoldenEye there on there, I think that's worthwhile. You know, if you get 30 games, go ahead and pop that on. Uh, but if you want to play GoldenEye on PC and you use like the mods from GoldenEye Vault, it, it really becomes a very, very cool game. Uh, the GoldenEye version on Wii, I loved that. I bought, in fact, I still have my gold, uh, my gold Wii Pro Controller from uh, from purchasing uh, GoldenEye for uh, for Wii because it came with an official gold uh, uh, Wii Pro uh, Wii Classic Pro Controller on that, uh, which is nice because that controller works on all of the mini systems, all of the classic systems, uh, because it has that, you know, that little proprietary connector. Um, 
And it has a really long cord, which that's something else, too. You know, speaking of that, uh, the SNES Classic, real quick, the they did make the cords a little bit longer. Not super long, but they're a little bit longer to where you don't have to go buy from Hyperkin, you know, one of their extension cables or something. Where As to where with the NES, it wasn't even like, it, it's debatable whether it was like three feet. I don't know. It was very, very short. Uh, so, yeah, N64 Classic, you know, I'm... I'm that's going to be a huge seller because there's a lot of party games on that. Like that's one thing with the SNES classic that it's sort of missing is not a lot of two player games. That's why I wish Dr. Mario was on there. Uh, even though Dr. Mario, the original Dr. Mario from the NES was on the NES classic. Uh, I, yeah, there, there's not a lot of two player. There's Mario Kart, which look Mario Kart, the, the super Nintendo version of Mario Kart, two things about this. In fact, I talked about this in the sovereign tech newsletter. Uh, the last issue issue was that issue six. Uh, you know, we recently found out that Mario Kart is uh, Shigeru Miyamoto's, who's, you know, greatest game developer of all time, the guy that made Mario, Zelda, all that, and Pikmin, you know. Uh, Shigeru Miyamoto, he, uh, Mario Kart is his favorite game. And, I mean, that's that says enough right there, frankly. But uh, the other interesting thing, or a couple interesting things about Mario Kart, I mean, today, to this day, there are still, you know, with cash prizes involved, there are still tournaments, eSport tournaments played with the original Super Nintendo Mario Kart. That's how timeless, how big of a deal this game is. I get it. Mario, You play Mario or Mario Kart 7 or 8, you know, and they're just far better experiences overall. You're absolutely right. But there's something to be said for this classic game, and I, I plan on there's going to be a lot of Mario Kart playing going on. But that's sort of the premier two-player game available on this. So the N64 could really resolve a lot of that because you have Mario Party, you have the first Smash Brothers. Um, there's a lot of classic games there that that do allow for two-player. Um, I think it would be interesting if uh, they allowed for... Well, I don't, never mind. I'm not going to go there. Okay. <laughs> uh, but there's there's a lot of multiplayer. A lot of fun can be had multiplayer on the N64. And the bulk of the games, minus the Zeldas and like Super Mario 64, um, and probably like Star Fox 64, uh, there's a lot of games on there that, or, you know, most of the games I think would be, would be multiplayer. Like, I mean, there's great single player experiences on the N64, but a lot of it would be multiplayer. I would love to see Star Wars games. I would love to see Shadows of the Empire or uh, uh, Racer, Episode 1 Racer, which that pod racing game is, I mean, that was a huge selling point for the N64. That Talk about a great multiplayer. Uh, that would be awesome. So, you know, and I didn't bring this up, actually. I was gonna, you know, we'll probably, we'll end out the show with this, with, with talking about some classic gaming here. Um, the, I didn't know this, but Mario Kart was originally supposed to be, and this is all of these, this is all that awesome information you find out when they start re-releasing these systems and you end up with these anniversaries. The uh, Mario Kart was originally going to be F-02 and F-0 is on the SNES Classic and that game's a lot of fun. But they, what they found out was they couldn't do all the animations and everything that they wanted to do with F-0 and, you know, like really make it this crazy multiplayer experience like they wanted it to be. And so they just changed everything and they turned it into Mario Kart. And then it ended up being one of the biggest games of all time. Uh, so it is pure happenstance and fortuitousness that that brought Mario Kart to, you know, to life uh, effectively. So I, I thought that that was a that was a very interesting you know story as far as that goes. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's you know, I don't know if we're going to end up with I'm sure someone will do it eventually where like with the NES classic, you had, uh, uh, you know, hackers. And I say that in, in a in a heroic sense. 
not in a malicious. Uh, you had hackers that were able to add on like 200 games or something uh, onto the NES Classic from the original, what did that have, like 20 games? However many the NES Classic had. Uh, and then you could play all kinds of NES games on there. I'm sure somebody's probably going to do that with the with the SNES Classic, but you know, maybe maybe they won't. But what's what's on there is really like you could you're gonna spend you could play those games forever. You know, the NES Classic. Some of those games, you know, you beat they're one and done, and like they don't play endlessly. As to where a lot of the games on the SNES Classic, I mean, Link to the Past, Super Metroid, uh, Super Ghouls and Goblins, a lot of these. Like they're either so hard or they're so epic games in and of themselves. You could be playing the system for fucking ever. <laughs> I mean, this is such a great investment. The $80 is totally worth it, uh, you know, all the way across the board. Now, the one thing, though, that I will say is that and this is true for for some Super Nintendo games. And this will also be true when it comes to the N64 Classic is that a lot of the great games from that era, from the Super Nintendo and the N64 were re-released for the Nintendo DS. And usually what they would do is, is they would just put the DS moniker at the end of it, right? Like it would be uh, Super Mario 64 DS, or it would be Yoshi's Island DS, uh, you know, or wh- whatever they, however they would make that happen. Or there, in fact, a lot of like there was Mario Kart DS. Uh, there's a bunch of these other ones, you know, in, in that ilk. Um, admittedly, and also like another game, so... Probably my favorite Nintendo character, this is not new for longtime listeners, is uh, Kirby. I love Kirby. Uh, so Kirby, uh, a, a superstar, is on is on there, and also the, the Kirby golf game is on, uh, is on the, the SNES Classic. So uh, Kirby Superstar Ultra is available for the DS, and it is a, you know, if, if there's a world of perfect games, and, you know, Kirby... The Kirby Superstar game is, is is like a bunch of mini games, but the ultra version is awesome. So I'll admit, if you'd rather like say you have a, a 2DS or 3DS, whatever, and because those can play original DS games, if you would just rather have like the fully featured DS versions of these games. Yeah, I understand that. And so you don't want to buy the classic system. But most people, I don't think, go down that route. Uh, even then, I still think the system is worth it. But like like super uh, like like Mario 64 DS. Uh, I doubt if the N60, if and when the N64 Classic comes out, that it's going to have the DS version of that. But the DS version of that is, is, is amazingly because Mario 64 for some people is the greatest game of all time. Uh, but it is easily like, like just far superior to the original Mario 64. You can play with different characters, you know, Wario and, and whatever else. And, and there's a bunch of stuff added in. Um, I love the DS versions. I own them as much as I can. And, yeah, I mean, but it could still be fun. It just like, well, or take uh, Ocarina of Time, which would be a huge draw for buying an N64 classic. The uh, Ocarina of Time 3D for the for the 3DS is equally has a lot of really cool features that just didn't exist for the original version. So maybe there will be a charm in playing the original version or something. But some of these games have had updates over the years for other systems on Nintendo uh, by Nintendo that are well worth it. You know, so admittedly keep that in mind and and some of the games that also that i have i already have say on virtual console on my 2ds that are available on the snes classic but there's a difference like i still enjoy being able to i one of the reasons i have a 2ds is i love being able a, a new 2ds xl is because i love having a totally encapsulated but portable package uh, where I can get into some serious fucking gaming. And no, no smartphone delivers that experience. Not today. Uh, because touchscreen controls are fucking shit, right? 
Um, but yeah, so I, I still see an advantage to owning both, you know, because then when you when you get to play it on the big screen and when you have that beautiful little package, like I said, there's just something almost ineffable about it that you can't exactly describe or explain. So I, I give this, you know, if I was given a ranking out of 10, I'd give the SNES, the SNES Classic an absolute 10 out of 10. It is a perfect console to buy. It is a retro time. It is a great time. And you can have fun with other people on it, too. The NES Classic, I assume, is, is just as great. And I hope more systems can help this. I think we'll end up with a Wii Classic. Anyway, there's a bunch of other stuff I wanted to get into. I didn't get to my Star Trek Discovery review, but there is the one on Patreon if you become a patron. Do that at SovereignTech.com. We'll get into more next week. I'll see you, you on the other side. You just experienced Sovereign Tech. Go to SovereignTech.com. That's S-O-V-R-Y-N-Tech.com. And connect with us there. Find links from today's show and catch our podcast feed. Sovereign Tech is copy heart. Copying art is an act of love, and love is not subject to law. So please, share the show however you like. Welcome to the Evolution. Evolution.